All right, if we could make our way back to our seats. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, if you'll go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 1. Uh, Malachi, if you're not kind of familiar with it, it's the last chapter in the Old Testament. So if you can find the, the break between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just turn back a couple pages and you'll find it. And um, Trent's going to come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. The first five verses of Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, as we open up your word, we ask that you would um, speak to us uh, through your spirit, um, that your spirit who knows uh, you perfectly, who knows our hearts perfectly, uh, God, who understands uh, your word perfectly, God, that he would uh, be the intermediary um, between your word and our hearts, um, God, that he would speak uh, to us and shine a light um, on this scripture and that we would understand it rightly. Um, God, that we would not be, um, that we would be comforted by your word um, and and not um, uh, scared of it, even in the places that are difficult for us to um, to wrap our heads around and to comprehend. Um, Father, we thank you for um, the Lord's day. We thank you for a chance to gather together. God, we pray uh, that you would continue to move among the churches of Blount County uh, and, and that uh, your spirit would go before us, God, that your people would scatter the seed of the gospel uh, and that, um, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, working um, in our community, that you would draw people to yourself um, according to your will. Father, we ask all these things in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we are going to jump in. Like I said, this is, uh, uh, we're going to start a Lenten series tonight, okay? And so Lent will be for the next six weeks. And it, and it just so happens that the structure of Malachi, not only the topic of Malachi, but the structure of Malachi lends itself to that. 
Um, we're going to dive in because I've got a long message. It's, it, this was as, for as short a passage as it is, there's a lot to be said to try to clarify. And it's going to be one of those kind of topics. There's no way that we can address fully. Um, if, if you are new to some of the doctrines that we're going to be talking about today, then this is not going to be enough for you. Okay. It's going to be something that you return to and, and, and wrestle through in terms of your understanding and the, and the teaching of God's word. Um, but we are going to jump in at, at this point in, in the book of Malachi. And so if, if you probably already are aware of this, I just said it a few moments ago, the book of Malachi closes out the Old Testament. Okay. And here's an interesting little side note, um, that, that I kind of came across that I was not aware of. You may or may not have known that the Old Testament is not in the same order if you're Jewish. Okay. If you have a Jewish, if you're a Jewish person, you have just the Jewish Old Testament, you know, it's in, the books are in different orders in some cases. Okay. The same is true of what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament that the ancient world uses. It, they're in different order too than, than our Old Testament. But here's an interesting fact. In all three of them, Malachi is the last book. Okay. Because there is a recognition by everybody that this was God's last word to the, the, the Jewish people before this, this period that we call the intertestamental period as Christians or the years of silence, um, where God didn't speak to, to, uh, the, the world, um, for roughly 400 years. Okay. And so there's a lot of ways in which this book we recognize as Christians not only sets up the New Testament, um, it sets up the coming of John the Baptist and, and more ultimately Jesus, and it bridges that gap um, between the two Testaments. And so what we're going to do is, like I said, for the next six weeks, we're going to walk through it because the, the structure of Malachi lends itself to that. Malachi is typically broken into these six things that, that are varyingly called disputations, Okay, and what we mean by that is over the course of this book, um, God is going to make six statements, essentially. Now, technically, he says a lot more than that. In fact, interestingly, another cool fact about Malachi is there is per number of words in the in the book, per number of verses, there is more first person God talking in Malachi than I think any other book in in the Bible. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is, is obviously lots of times when we read that, like an Old Testament prophet, the prophet is saying, here's what the Lord says. And then he's almost recounting it. Right. But that's not the way this one is written. It's written from the first person. I think that's, I'm terrible at English. So I think that's right. But it's written from like God actually saying, here's what I'm talking to you. Here's what I say. Okay. Now, obviously we understand that the whole Bible is God's revelation, but there's a neat there's a neat angle there because of the way the, 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 the English works, right? Okay. Um, but those six disputations, God will say something. The rhetorical Israelite community will come back with a question or an objection, as we'll see. And then God kind of explains and expounds upon the statement that he has made. Okay. And so even though this book was written roughly 2,400 years ago, I think it has still a lot to say to us because, again, it's, it's a book that is challenging Israel in their sin. Um, but I think as we read it, we'll find out these are the same kind of things that we all fall into uh, as, as believers, okay? So it begins with this, this, this passage, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We don't know a ton about Malachi. Um, 
But what we think is the case is that he is prophesying around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right. So um, and we'll get into that in a little more in, in just a second as we talk about the history of it. But then it says this. God speaks in verse two and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. OK, and notice one interesting thing about that phrase. It's in the past tense. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, now he's not using it in the past tense because he's trying to say, I used to love you, but I don't anymore. That's not what he's saying. Okay, but he is using the past tense for a very specific reason. The reason he's saying that in the past tense is because he already knows what's going on in the doubtful hearts of his people, Israel. Because look at how they respond immediately after he says that. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then what do they say? How have you loved us? How have you loved us? You say you've loved us, God. Show us the evidence that you've loved us, okay? Now, that passage should be a little bit jarring to you, right? It takes a certain amount of gall for God to say, I have loved you, and then you to go, oh, yeah, how, God? I'd like to know how you've loved me. Okay, there is a certain level of sort of obliviousness that has to take place there. But that's exactly what happens in the passage. Um, Israel looks back to God who is saying, I have loved you. And they say, really? How? Because we're not seeing it right now, God. Understanding the historical moment probably helps us see how they could feel that way a little bit. Although I think probably the case is that we can all sympathize with it some ways. Again, the general consensus is that Malachi is written um, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah or just after that time, okay? And so a real quick history, if you're not real familiar with your Old Testament history and the way things play out, remember the story. The Israelites come into the promised land. There are years of kings and, and things that go on. David and Solomon, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. In general, the northern kingdom is is wicked. In general, though, with some exceptions, the southern kingdom follows God relatively well. And then eventually, God decides that he's tired um, of, of the sin of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, and he's going to judge that sin. And so in the year 722, uh, the Assyrian army comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom, and they cease to exist as a nation. Um, then about 125 years later, the sin of the Southern kingdom has sort of bubbled up to a point where God says, it's time for me to do something about this. I can't hold back any longer and let you continue to live this way. And so then around the year 598, the Southern kingdom of, of, of Judah is destroyed by the Babylonian empire and the Babylonians, unlike the Assyrians who just came in and killed everybody, pretty much the Babylonians, displace you. They take your people out of their ancestral land with their ancestral gods and the, the places where where their children were raised and their fathers were buried, right? And they put you in another place so that you'll lose all context of your culture, lose all context of, of um, who you are and where you came from. It doesn't happen for the Jews because they hold on to their traditions, but they're in captivity in Babylon for roughly 60 years when the Babylonian empire is conquered by another empire, the Persians and their King Cyrus issues a decree that all these people who were displaced by the Babylonian empire, you guys can go home. You still got to give me tribute. You still got to pay you taxes and all those things, but you can go back to your ancestral lands. And that begins a, a about a hundred year period of successive waves of Jews returning to 
the promised land. Uh, the first group comes in with, with a leader named Zerubbabel in 538. Ezra comes in 458, Nehemiah in 432. So stretching over that amount of time. It's about at that time as these people are coming back to the promised land, returning to Jerusalem, reestablishing the temple, reestablishing temple worship, building the walls around Jerusalem, somewhere in there, uh, Malachi prophesies. And so as these people come back, there was a promise there, right? They were going back because they thought something important was going to happen. There was this messianic kind of hope as they returned to the promised land. Um, they thought this was going to be a new era after their, after their judgment, after their discipline, their punishment of being in, in captivity in Babylon. They're now thinking we're going to go back to our home. We're going to get temple worship going again. God's going to bless us. And it is going to be this new era of the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet what we learn when we see Ezra, when we read Nehemiah, when we read the other post-exile prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, And then finally with Malachi, what we realize is that that doesn't happen. Things are not particularly better. That the Jewish people are still living in the same patterns of unfaithfulness, of defiance against God. And because of these things, as they come back and are there in in the land of Canaan, um, there is political, social, economic difficulty, instability. Okay, this is not a golden age for the people. It is it is a, a time of uncertainty. Again, they thought it was going to be a golden age, but it hasn't turned out that way. And as a result, Israel begins to doubt the presence of God. They start asking this question, man, why did we even come back? Uh, if, if God's not going to do things, if he's not going to pour out his blessing on us, if we're not going to sense his goodness, what's going on? Like, how have you loved us, God? Because we came back and we don't see anything different has changed. So when God says, I have loved you, past tense, what he's trying to do is is say, Israel, look backwards, right? Look back at all the ways that I have worked in and through you over the last 1,100 years, since Moses, or even further back, since Abraham, as I have provided and protected and rescued and forgiven and guided. And I have watched over you as a people. And now I have even allowed you to come back to Jerusalem, come back and reestablish the temple. Look, when you ask, how have I loved you? Look back to what I have done in your life. Okay. It can be the same with us. Okay. There's obviously a principle there for us. When life has not gone as we planned, As we look around and we sort of think, man, what are you even doing right now, God? Like everything seems a mess socially, culturally, politically. You know, it's probably not this bad, but man, it feels like we're on the brink of World War III in some ways, right? Um, There is tension, right? Um, Forget about all the stuff that's going on in, in, in denominations and things like that or in our personal lives as we struggle with different things. And it can be easy for us in the midst of that chaos to just sort of look up and say, and how have you loved me, God? And I think he would say the same thing that he does to the church, uh, to the, to the Israelite community. He would say, look back, look back across your life, look back across the ways that I have worked and ministered and helped and, and blessed you in the past and remember my great love for you. 
And so here at the end of the scriptures, right, God is pointing towards that love that is stretched across the centuries for his people Israel. Now here's where it gets a little bit interesting, though. A little bit difficult for us. Because while the scope of that love is very huge, right, it's it's millennia long, God zooms in not on all those other things, the protection and provision and rescue and forgiveness and all those things per se. He zooms in on one particular aspect of his love. And that is his sovereign choosing of Israel. Okay? The thing that he zooms in on is he says, I chose you. So look what it says. God says to the people, is not Esau Jacob's brother? You remember Jacob and Esau back in the Old Testament, the children of of Isaac and Rebekah, the twins that that fought inside um, their mother's womb, right? We We did a whole series on Jacob maybe two years ago, three years ago. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I hate it. Okay? Now, here's the deal, man. I don't think it's a stretch to say this is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible theologically. Because it deals with this fact that we have a God who chooses people. Chooses nations. The theological word for that is election. And because God is personal and volitional, he makes those choices. And because he's sovereign and almighty, those choices he makes stand forever. And God chooses individual people and God chooses whole peoples. God chooses on a, you could say a micro level individually, and he chooses on a macro level in terms of groups, nations, nationalities, or something like that. He chooses both in terms of blessing, and the Bible would show us that he chooses in terms of salvation as well. All right? That's a hard doctrine to wrap your head around. We've not even said anything about it yet, but already, if you are less than familiar with it, I know in your heart you're already welling up with those questions, right? Yeah, but what about, what about, what about, what about? Okay? Let's just kind of look and and, and lean into it a little bit and see some of the things that we see. So on a micro level... This passage is actually quoted in the New Testament. This specific passage about Jacob I love, but Esau I hated is quoted in Romans chapter 9. And in my understanding of that passage, it's about individual salvation of individual people. So let's read a little section of it. Romans 9, 11 says this, talking about Jacob and Esau, it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election, his choosing decision, might continue, not because of works, the works of man, but because of him who calls. That's God. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right? Now here's the deal. Some have tried, when you read that passage in Romans 9, the application of it, they've tried to explain it by saying this. Well, what that really means is God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, but that's only relative, right? It just means that he favored Jacob so much more that it looked as if it was hatred in terms of the way he treated Esau. 
But that's not the point. And I don't think that's a right understanding of it. The point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau. It's that God loved Jacob rather than Esau. He shows how, although Jacob and Esau are functionally alike in every way, right? Same grandfather Abraham, same father Isaac, who is the promised seed, the chosen line that God has promised. Same mother Rebecca, conceived at the same time in the same womb as twins. Even against the prevailing culture, which should have said that Esau should be the the uh, the firstborn, should be the, the uh, inheritor of everything. And yet God, against what's called primogenitor, chooses Jacob instead of Esau. And we know it is rightly, it is right to apply that passage on a micro level to individual salvation because that's what Paul's doing in Romans 9. However, it's not what's going on in our passage in Malachi, okay? Because I think he's dealing with it at the macro level, even though it's right to apply it at a micro level too, okay? So I said all that to say this. When we're talking about this, we are talking about election unto salvation. There are principles that we can draw from this. We're talking about God choosing people to be saved. It's a larger topic that obviously we would have to talk a lot about to go through. But it's a broader, it's a zoomed out picture when we look at Malachi. Malachi is drawing attention to God's love by showing he has sovereignly chosen and worked through Israel as a people and not through any other people, okay? Particularly not through this group called the Edomites who are the descendants of Esau, okay? Now, real quick, what does that mean? When we're talking about zoomed out picture, God chose the Israelites. He didn't choose anybody else. Particularly, he didn't choose Esau. That doesn't mean that every single Israelite is saved just by virtue of being born ethnically Jewish. It doesn't mean that every single Edomite is lost, there could, there were situations where outsiders became part of the covenant people. They would come in and say, I want to worship the one true God. I want to become Jewish in terms of my religion. And they would be initiated into, they proselytized into, into, um, the Jewish faith, right? We can think of stories like the, uh, the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitist, right? She was not a person of, of Jewish ancestry. Right. Um, she was uh, she was outside of that. And yet she was brought into the covenant community because of her faith and because, through her marriage. OK. And so it's not to say that everybody outside of that chosen people is 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 covenantally lost or excluded. And it doesn't mean there aren't some ways even then that God doesn't bless Edom in some ways, right? There are some ways that he works and shows kindness and mercy to even, even though he has not chosen them and they are outside of his people. But maybe we should just look to a couple passages in scripture like Deuteronomy chapter seven, which, which says it like this. God is talking to Israel and he says, for you are a people holy, separated out to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession." out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord uh, set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Okay, So you see several things in that passage. This idea that God has chosen out of his own will, not because of anything that Israel had done, He just chose them out of his own will because he says, because I love you, because I want to 
um, show my particular love to you. I have loved you. That's how he starts this passage. Okay, now that makes even more confusing, more interesting, the way he elaborates on that passage. Because look what he says next. He doesn't start zooming in on the ways that he has loved Israel or something like that. He zooms in on the way that he has hated Esau. So he says, I have laid waste his hill country. I have left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Okay, that's strong words. Okay, if you're not paying attention, those are strong words against Esau. So again, here's what's odd to me. I am, he's saying, I am God. I've loved you from the beginning, Israel. I have chosen you above everybody else. And the way I want to demonstrate how much I've loved is by this comparatively long discourse about how I am forever and always going to bring the hammer down on Edom. That seems like a, that's not the way I would make that argument. Okay. If I was trying to express my love for my children, I would not then tell you about how I didn't treat other kids that way. Like I wouldn't be like, guys, I love you so much. I don't feed any of these kids out here. I don't ever give them shelter. I've never taken them to Disney World. Like that's not what I would say, but that's the way God explains it. This is obviously part of the difficulty that people have with the doctrine of election. People fear that it makes God out to be cruel or capricious somehow. But again, I think probably the historical context that we find in this passage helps us a little bit. It maybe puts some some balm on on that um, concern. Because the point is not to say, look how severe God has been to the nations, per se, but to say, look how I have condemned these other nations for their sin, and yet I have had mercy on you, Israel. I have defended you against enemy nations. Okay, so so if you don't know much about Edom, this is what happens. So Edom, Esau is born, and a people come from him that ends up being called Edom. They have their own land that is sort of northern Arabia, southern uh, Canaanite land or whatever, down in the south, okay? Um, and the reality is, is we see enmity between Israel and Edom pretty much for the whole scriptures. The only highlight of their relationship is when Israel, Jacob, actually comes and meets Esau and they reconcile. That's the only good part. After that, it's like pretty much they don't get along. The nations don't get along after that. The prophet Obadiah indicates that Edom, actually the descendants of Esau, actually colluded with the Babylonians when they invaded um, Israel, it invaded Jacob. So, or invaded Judah. Sorry, I'm getting all the names mixed up. So what would happen is when they came in to conquer Judah, and the, the people of Judah fled, you know what the Edomites did? They'd catch them up and turn them back over to the Babylonians, okay? They're long-lost cousins, the people of their own land, in a sense, even though they are ethnically distinct in some ways. They were traitors to the Jewish people, okay? There is even an extra-biblical tradition that says in their cooperation with the Babylonians, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, that the Edomites were given the specific job of destroying the temple and bringing it to the ground, okay? Um, 
Now, as you might expect, Babylon is only friends with Edom until they don't need them anymore. And then Babylon destroys Edom as well. All right. And they are dispersed and they don't have a nation anymore. But it's been 100 years or so. And the Edomites have started to trickle back into the land. And just like the Israelites, they've kind of come home and, and started to form communities again. Except guess what? The Arabs have now taken over their land. They don't they can't go back to their own land because the Arabs have conquered it. So you know where they go? They they settle in southern Judah. And so now the promised land that God has given to his people is now being occupied by this group of people that says, we're not leaving, okay? So much so that if you read the New Testament, you'll read about this place in southern Israel called Idiumea. You talk about it in the Gospels in Jesus' time. Idiumea basically means the land of the Edomites, except it's not the land of the Edomites, okay? It's where they're squatting. Um, it is where they have come in and taken over land that belongs to God's chosen people, okay? And so the Edomites represent a historical enemy, to the people of Israel. They represent a current threat in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi to the people of Israel. But from the outside, again, Edom and Israel would look very similar, right? They sure probably look similar to the Babylonians, both of a common ancestry, both ancient tribes, both long histories in that land, both unfaithful to their God in various ways, sins of idolatry and stuff like that, both judged for their sins by the conquest from Babylon. Both back in the land now after a period of exile, right? I mean, if you're an outsider looking in, you're like, man, these, these guys look basically the same. They're the same people. And yet what does the, the scripture say? God says, I chose you, Israel, but not them. I am for you, Israel, and I am against the Edomites. I have brought you back to Jerusalem Israel to establish you, to start over, to rebuild. But for Edom, it doesn't matter how many times they try to rebuild. I will cast them down. I will bring them to destruction. I won't allow them the same mercy that I have allowed you. Their sin will be met with punitive condemnation. Israel's sin will be met with corrective discipline. Not because Israel's worthy. They're not. Not because they've done everything right. They haven't. But because God, in his sovereign choice and his unfailing love, has chosen Israel and not chosen Esau and Edom. Okay? Again, hard things to process in our own understandings of, of life and, and fairness and things like that. But here's something to hold on to. The reality is, is this, is that fairness, we've talked about this before, fairness would be everybody being judged, right? Fairness would be justice coming on all people who have turned away from God. And who does that include? All of us, right? That's what justice would look like. Fairness is for all people and all nations to suffer the consequences of their sin. But what happens is, and God is saying this, he's saying, but in grace, Israel, in mercy, I have not done that with you. You can see it happening in your neighbor's lives where I have brought judgment on them 
And yet I'm not treating you in the same way. I'm treating you with kindness and mercy. So when they ask, how have you loved us, God? He says, I have shown you the particular care. And all you have to do is look around at the other nations around you to see that I have watched out for you in a unique way. Not to mention the fact, looking all the way back to your history, okay? So then in verse 5, it says this. It says, one day Israel will, will understand all this prophetically, eschatologically, in times kind of way. Verse 5, it says, your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, okay? Sort of a nebulous phrase, but I think what he's getting at is saying this. One day you will see that God is the God of all people and that everybody on earth at the end of the day has to answer to him, okay? He is your God and he has chosen you, but that doesn't mean the Edomites get to go and do their own thing and not have to worry about the one true God of the universe. Everybody will stand before the one true God at some point. And, and God is saying, and Israel, you are shown mercy and everybody else is not. That's what my covenantal love, that's what my election has wrought in your lives. Now, what do we do with all that, right? Again, man, there's a lot here and a whole lot of stuff to talk about, okay? But there's an application to our own hearts because even though we are not Israel in this case, right? We are not the Jacob per se that is being chosen here, but in a sense we are. And the reason is because that election, that choosing is now found in Christ, Okay, so the 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 fact that God has chosen you is no longer a function of you being an ethnic uh, Jew from a certain region in a certain time or whatever. His chosenness of you is now the fact that you are in Jesus Christ. All right. Now, man, again, we could go down the rabbit hole about the complexities of what does that mean for Israel now? Who is Israel, ethnic national Israel in the structure of God's saving work in the world. Like what does he, how, where do they play into this whole thing? They were sovereignly chosen, right? God's making all kinds of promises to them in the Old Testament about he's going to watch over them for all of time. And yet we know also that some things have happened there because of the coming of Jesus. One of my favorite places to go to in the scriptures for this is uh, Romans chapter 11. And it has a very simple illustration for us. It talks about the fact that the people of God are like an olive tree. And you can imagine that all people uh, who, who are in Jesus Christ are in this olive tree. Once upon a time, those people, before Jesus came, those people in the olive tree were those who had trusted in God by faith of, of the people of Israel and any kind of proselytes who had come. But now that we are in, in the church age, it is those who have trusted in Christ that are part of this tree. And the Bible says this. It says, if you are a Jew, if you're one of those historic people of God, and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you will be allowed to be part of that tree, okay? You will grow as a branch in that tree, all right? But if you have not believed in Christ, then God will come and he will prune you out, okay? He will cut your branch off and he will remove it. And then he gives the illustration of us as the Gentiles, right? We are the people, everybody in this room has more in common ethnically with the Edomites than you do with anybody else, right? Because you are not, I don't, most of us anyway, I don't know about your backgrounds, but most of you are not of Jewish descent, right? We have more in common with the Edomites whom God is cursing in this passage. And yet Romans chapter 11 says this, 
you can be grafted into the people of God. You are like a wild olive tree out in the woods. And, and maybe you don't know this, or, or maybe you do. You can actually take a branch and slice it off at the right angle, bring it to another tree of a similar kind, slice off a little opening in the bark and stick them together and wrap some tape around it. And that branch will grow and be fed by the source of that trunk. Okay. That's the picture that he gives us. He says, Gentiles, Edomites, people whom uh, God has chosen now in Christ, you can be grafted into the people of God through faith in Christ. Israelites, if you do not trust in Christ, you will be pruned off and taken out of it. But the reality is this, that election is still playing a role in our lives, but it is election in Christ now. That Christ is the is the center of that, not being an ethnic of an ethnic people group, but of being chosen of God by faith in Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the first thing I want you to understand from this passage. A second thing is this, man. The mysteries of God when it comes to his sovereignty and choice are deep, and it's hard to understand. And at a certain level, I don't think we'll ever understand. I was having a conversation with Cheeto beforehand. We were talking about the passage and talking about some things, and he said, yeah, but why? Why did God choose Jacob? Why does God choose me? Why did God not choose Esau? Why does he choose anybody? And the answer is, there's no answer to that. It's certainly not anything in me. It's certainly not anything that was in Jacob. Why did God choose he just did because like we said at the beginning, he is a person, he has a will, he is sovereign and he can choose whom he has mercy on and he can choose who he is harsh to. I, I was trying to think of an illustration and nothing is going to be, is going to be uh, helpful exactly. But I thought to myself, it's a little bit like falling in love. Okay. Um, I married my wife. I gotta be real careful the way I say this. Um, my wife's awesome. She's great. Okay. But objectively, let's say, could I have found somebody who was nicer? Somewhere, maybe. Maybe there was a little bit nicer, right? Somebody who was, had some other quality. Okay. I, I'm, I'm trying not to get in trouble. This is what I'm trying to say. So why did I pick her? Why did I pick her? That's what I'm trying to say. Why did she pick me? That's the question. <laughs> pity is what her answer is. I chose him out of pity. Um, the answer is, is this, is I don't know. I could tell you lots of qualities that I love about her. But at the end of the day, there are probably other people in the world who have those qualities too. So why did I pick her? And the answer is, I just, I just fell in love with her, right? I just loved her. I, I don't, there's not a math equation to do that. There wasn't a box checking where I could have gone through and been like, eh, well, you got a, you know, a 99% on hotness, but, uh, you're missing a little bit in the, uh, you know, washing dishes category or whatever. Like that's not what, that's not how it worked out, right? I just went, I like her. I love her and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And I don't know where that came from. I'm sure it's much more complicated than that in the mind of God, right? Um, 
God is not as fickle as we are. God is not as wooed by other sources of, you know, influence and things like that. And yet there's something in God that just says, I chose Israel. Could have chosen anybody else in the world, but I didn't. I chose them. They are my special people. I'm placing my love on them. They are my treasured possession. And there's nothing in them that would have been the reason, could have justified that. I'm just picking them because I wanted to pick them. That's frustrating for probably most of us because that's not the answer we want to hear. Like, um, we want some kind of something more solid to grab onto, but there isn't anything more solid to grab onto. God sovereignly chose Israel because God is sovereign and he chooses. That's it. Maybe one day in eternity we'll have a better answer than that, but I wouldn't count on it. If you think you're going to figure it all out when you get to heaven, maybe you will, but don't be disappointed if you don't. Because I'm not sure that we could ever understand the mind of God on something like that. There are truths that we just have to accept and can't completely understand. But we stand in awe of them, right? We stand in awe of God's choosing love, that he would choose me, um, that he would choose Israel. And moreover, we tremble at his terrible justice. We tremble at, at what it looks like to fall under the mighty hand of God in judgment. And here's one more thing that I want to point to out of this passage, and I think it's maybe a little more applicational um, that it'll, it'll be helpful, is that for the elect, for those who have been chosen of God, we begin judgment in love. For those of us who are elect, we begin judgment in love. This is what I mean by that. So I told you at the beginning that there are going to be six disputations. There are going to be six times where God says something, Israel says, uh-uh, and then God says, oh, yeah, um, to them, okay? All the other five, he comes out of the gate with an accusation against them. You are not doing this. You have failed to be this kind of people, right? Every, all the other five, but not this one, not this one. This one, he, there's not an accusation at all in it, right? In this one, there is him saying something about himself at the beginning. The first thing that God tells us is of his commitment to us, his love for us. It's not an accusation. It is him saying something about himself. If we are in Christ, we are his elect. And as his elect, when he talks to us, even if the next five things he says are going to be about judgment at some level, we remember it is always in the context of him lovingly correcting and disciplining us, not in him righteously condemning us, okay? If we are in Christ. That's why we get a little confused sometimes. We talk about judgment. Judgment's, judgment's a real thing, okay? But for believers, it's, it doesn't look the same anymore. Judgment for a believer looks like correction. Judgment for a non-believer looks like condemnation, okay? They're not the same thing. One is the way a righteous judge acts. One is the way a loving father acts. Notice when he's talking to his chosen people, he begins with his own love. So again, as an illustration, you've probably done this if you've got kids. Your kids have been doing something wrong. They've done something maybe really wrong. And, and you've got to confront them about it. You've got to make them aware of it. I don't know if, I'm sure you've done this. You know what you do? You walk off to you, and I do this James all the time. They get a little bigger and it's harder to do this, but you still do it too. I say, James, come here. And he comes over and I get in close and I bring him in tight and I hug him and I say, bud, you know, I love you very much. Right? 
Um, and I want what's good for you and I want what, what's best for you. And, and I don't want you to be hurt or angry in any way. But if you ever do that again, <laughs> right? And then you, and then you say the thing. Okay. Um, there's a sense in which I think that's what God is doing in this passage is he is saying, you're about to get an earful for five disputations, right? And I'm going to bring your sin to bear on you. You're sitting here looking at me going, oh, you don't love us anymore, God. You never do anything for us. And I'm going to say, hold on a minute. Here's what you're doing and what's really going on. But I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start by saying, I have always loved you. And everything in every way that I've ever treated you is a function of my great love for you. And because I love you so much, I'm not going to sit here and let you continue to live this way. I'm not going to sit here and listen to you uh, impugn my love for you. I'm going to make you aware of, of what's going on because I love you. I'm committed to you. Um, I'm going to bless you. I didn't bless other people. I'm going to bless you. And I want things to be better. So for those outside God's people, sin is just condemnation. For his children, it is loving discipline and endless mercy. All right? That's where we begin Malachi. Okay? It's a great place to begin Lent, too. It's a good place to start. Is to say, I mean, we're going to go into a season of, of repentance and of thoughtfulness in terms of our sin, but we never think of that in terms of, boy, I got to do better or God's not going to let me into heaven. That's not the picture that we should think. We're not a people who are outside God's love. As believers, we are his children, but we want to be faithful to him. We want to live in a way that honors him. And that's what we're doing in Lent. Okay. Amen. Um, so let's close in prayer. Um, I encourage you to, to reflect and pray on those things that we just said. Re- reflect on God's gracious, sovereign choice of you in Jesus Christ. Um, reflect on, on the unknowable um, mystery that is the sovereign God. And, and focus on that love uh, that, that pervades every interaction that we have with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we, as we reflect on your incredible love for us in Jesus Christ, God, we, um, we look to the past. Um, we look back in the ways that you have moved and cared and protected, the ways that you have been with us and guided us, God, the ways that you have kept us out of trouble, the ways that you have preserved us in the midst of trial, um, God, the way that you have put um, uh, support and, and help and guidance into our life at, at, at precious times. Um, God, we look back at all the ways that you have loved us as your people, and we thank you. God, at the same time, we can look around us, maybe at, at friends and family, maybe at people who we went to school with, and we can see 
um, examples of people who did not know you and did not trust you, people who had willfully uh, turned away from you. And we can see the wreckage oftentimes in their lives. God, we thank you for any mercy that we see there too. Uh, we pray that, um, God, that you are working in their lives, even in the midst of, of their sin and rebellion. Um, we, we pray, and, and it, it sounds odd to say it, but we hope, God, that they are among your elect, um, that you are working them the long way around to bring them um, to yourself. And yet, God, as we see uh, the, the destruction and judgment that follows their sin, God, we are thankful um, that we are not in the same place. Um, we are thankful that we have been shown mercy, that we have been shown grace when we could just as easily have been in those situations. God, let that stir in us a, a, um, got a responsibility and a passion as, as we try to understand all of this stuff in terms of election and your choice and our responsibility and, and, and free will and, and all of these different things. God, let these ideas not negate the fact that we must take the gospel to the world. Um, that it is our responsibility to go to that person who we know is far from Christ and to call them to Christ. God, to ask them to turn from their sins uh, and and come to Jesus Christ. God, we do not use election or your sovereignty um, as an excuse to not do the things that you have told us to. Um, but God, that they are the impetus behind them. God, the grace that you have shown us um, is the is the driving force behind our obedience. The the terror of your judgment uh, to a lost world is is the impetus behind um, the fact that we recognize the great responsibility that we have. God, help us to understand these things rightly, use them rightly in our own hearts, um, and to um, God that in all these things that they would turn us towards your Son Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His
Saved a lot of time if we just sing that song because that's pretty much it. That last line that's the question, right? Why should I gain from his reward? That's the question of election, right? Um, why should I gain and somebody else not? And the answer he has is, I can't give an answer for that. I don't know why I should gain from his reward, but I know this with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom, right? That's the deal. Um, amen. Um, thanks for being here tonight. Um, I think it'll be a cool study. Um, I've actually been thinking about doing it for like two years and I kept waffling on it and I was like, no, I'm going to jump and we'll do it, uh, last minute. So I'm going to warn you. Um, I'm afraid that what's going to happen is the bigger picture of Malachi is I'm going to get halfway through the book and all of a sudden I'm going to go, oh man, there was so much more I should have said back then. I got to retool this whole thing. Everything I told you was right. But there's more to it than whatever. That may happen um, as I dig into it. But um, that's my fault in waiting till the last minute before we really started digging into it. So um, um, one announcement real quick, just a, a random thing. Um, parents and little kids, there's not any little kids in here. Uh, let's be careful when we, so we usually take the bread and we put it over there on the table, right? Um, don't let them take the bread back over to the uh, the other building to the flex space because we're trying to keep it allergen free and all that stuff like that. And man, they're just going in there with like big hunks of bread, you know, and it's, and it's going all over the place. So if uh, everybody loves that bread, everybody loves that bread. Um, but, but keep it over here or outside or whatever else, just don't take it in the other building. So you can kind of police parents. You can kind of say, Hey, don't take that. Um, you can have some, just don't take it over there. Cool. Um, uh, other than that, um, again, glad you're here. Um, looking forward to this series. Um, hope you have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.